Well, today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So, um... Uh, for those of you who don't know, a couple of days, it's a big day, it's going to be my birthday. Uh, I will be entering the last year of my 30s, so I'm going to live it up uh, for that. But uh, I have a confession to make, as I said, that I'm not just trying to tell you it's my birthday to elicit some sort of happy birthday text or get you to write on my Facebook wall. Don't do that, all right? Um, let it pass unnoticed. But um, I, I, confession, I have a really hard time remembering gifts that people get me for my birthday. Um, and Because I, I was thinking about this. It's Pentecost Sunday. This is the Sunday that, that, that gets categorized, I think rightly, as the birthday of the church. This is when the church is born. It's its first birthday. Is at the first Pentecost when what happens in Acts chapter 2 happens, that God gives the gift, the best birthday gift ever, the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. And so as I was thinking about gifts and birthdays, you know, I, I was thinking about my childhood. I can't remember probably but one gift I got in my childhood. And mom and dad, you guys were always great, but I can't remember. I got a bike, I remember, when I was like going into high school. And that bike I rode till even I was in college and it was stolen from the University of Minnesota, very sadly. Um, uh, but I remember that. And, uh, and I was thinking even about, you know, Amy, my wife, okay, she's always trying to get me a thoughtful gift. And I was thinking, what did she get me for my birthday last year? Literally one year ago. I do not remember at all. I said, what did she get me for other birthdays? And the only thing I could remember was she gave me a, a homebrew kit um, like, like three or four years ago. And so thank you, honey. Uh, thank you for that. And so as we think about the giving and, and the receiving of gifts as it relates to the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience um, 
with, with opening a gift. And, 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 and then you open it and you take it out of the package. And usually, if you have to say this, you have kind of an embarrassed look on your face. You go, what is it? I don't know if you've ever had that experience, opening something and going, what? Okay, what is this? I, I've never had that for a birthday. And the closest I'm thinking, what's the closest I could ever approximate to this in my own life was um, one time when I was, I was uh, quite a bit younger, um, you know, school age still. Uh, I remember I got a Snapple. And on the Snapple bottle cap, there was a prize. You could win prizes through these Snapple bottle caps. I won a remote control caddy. And, and I was so excited when I saw that I had won this remote control Caddy, I couldn't wait to send off and to see, like, all right, what is this going to be, a Coupe de Ville, an Escalade? Like, I'm so excited to see. I sent off. And, you know, these prizes, they, these contests, they take weeks and weeks and weeks, months and months. So I'd almost forgotten about it when all of a sudden this package comes from Snapple with my remote control caddy in it. Um, and I opened it, and I saw something that looked a little bit like this. So, and in fact, that is like the souped-up version, that is a thing for holding your remote controls. A literal caddy, like a golf caddy, holds your stuff. Um, and in fact, the one that Snapple sent was literally a piece of plastic with a few ridges in it that you could slide them and slot them into. So it was like the most cheap, broke-down version of a remote control caddy, something I'd never heard of before in my life. And so to my everlasting embarrassment, I had thought I was getting a remote control, an RC Cadillac, but I got that instead. Uh, so, you know, what, what is it? So I think today, the reason I bring this up is to talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, to talk about Pentecost, is that sometimes, you know, even if you've grown up in Christian circles, you've run in Christian circles, it can be easy to, you know, uh, say, okay, it's Pentecost Sunday. Wow, God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest gift anyone's ever given to anyone else. And, uh, but you're just sitting there quietly thinking on the inside, okay, but, but, but what is it? What is it? What does it do? And so this sermon is for you this morning. If you find yourself thinking, what is it? What is this gift? What is God giving us? What am I getting? And so in, in order to look at that, we're going to look at these two passages, one from Acts chapter 2, one from uh, uh, Galatians chapter 5. And, and so we're going to look at, okay, first we're going to look at what, 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 like what is this gift that we've been given? And then second, how does Paul, you know, as he's talking to the Galatians, he's talking about the, what this gift actually does and, and, and kind of how this gift is involved in this conflict that we're all in. And then finally, the, the, how this gift works itself out in our lives. And so first, let's just say what, what we're going to open this, we're going to look at it, we're going to say, what is this? What is this for? And so in Acts chapter 2, we've got the 12 apostles that are all gathered together in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus has told them, you know, he's ascended into heaven. We talked about the ascension last Sunday. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's saying, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, you will be my witnesses. And so they're, they're sitting there. They're, they're gathered. They're praying. And they're waiting. And then all of the sudden, uh, the room in, in, in which they're in, uh, there's a sound like a mighty wind that fills the house. And then there appears these divided tongues as a fire that, that rest upon each of the apostles who are there. And, and, and it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin speaking um, in, in other languages as the Spirit gives them ability. And, and it's not part of our reading, but later on it says what they were speaking about, which was about the mighty works of God, which if we read in Acts, that's, that's talking about Israel's history that leads up to and climaxes in what God has done in Jesus Christ. All right, so you get it? The gift of the Spirit here, it's clarifying. What, what is it? Okay, the gift of the Spirit is something like a mighty wind, something like divided tongues as a fire. It's something that fills you up 
and it is something that gives you the ability to speak about what God has done in Christ. Now, you might hear me say all of that, and you smile and nod, but, but you still would whisper maybe to the person next to you, okay, yeah, but like, but what is it? So what is this present that's been given to us by God, God's very first birthday present to the church, the present that he gives, that, that, that we claim that God gives to each and every person who belongs to him? And we see it right here in, in these four verses. And uh, I'm a preacher, and so we love nothing more than alliteration and triads, threes. So I'm going to give you another alliterative triad here this morning, because this, is, this will help us remember, what is the Spirit? What, is, what does it do? And, and it's this, so that uh, the, the, the Spirit is, is God's presence with us, it's God's power in us, and it's God's promise to us. So first, the gift of the Spirit is the gift of God's presence. In the Old Testament, when God shows up, the, the theological word we put around it is a theophany, an appearance of God. And the appearance of God par excellence in the Old Testament it occurs in Exodus chapter 3. God, Moses is, is, is tending the flocks uh, of his father-in-law Jethro in, in, in the wilderness, in Midian. When God appears to Moses in the wilderness as what? As a burning bush, right? A fire that burns but does not consume. And it's from that bush that God reveals his name, his very own name to Moses. I am, you know, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. And this is, this is, this is the, you know, one of the seminal moments in Scripture when it comes to God's self-revelation, his disclosure of himself. It's from that ever-burning, self-sustaining, not destroying fire that God speaks and reveals his name. And when God leads the Israelites out of slavery, you know, through, through the wilderness. By day, it's a pillar of cloud. By night, it is a pillar of fire. That's God with his people leading them. Another just random example we can pull, you know, Elijah, he's having his competition against the prophets of Baal, the thousands of prophets of Baal. And Elijah, you know, he's, he's hamming it up for in this competition. He's soaking uh, the altar uh, and everything that surrounds his sacrifice with water. And then what happens when he calls upon the Lord? A fire from heaven comes down and consumes everything. And so when we're talking about this, this fire, these divided tongues as a fire, I think we're talking about something that is the same as these other instances. This is God's presence. This is, this is, this is God with his people, revealing himself to his people. Except this time the fire isn't, you know, resting on a bush, but it's actually resting on the apostles. They are the ones who are burning, but not being consumed. Now, what a wonderful and, and a kind of terrifying thought at the same time, that to be a Christian is to have the fire of God's presence dwelling in us, a, a fire that doesn't destroy us with judgment, or, or, or a fire, even that, you know, if we think about someone's on fire, it means they're really enthusiastic for something. And you know when someone's on fire for something, you know that they're going to what? Fire is associated with burning out. And so being on fire can be a very dangerous thing because that fire is going is to destroy you. But God's fire is a fire that burns but does not consume. That instead of burning us out, it, it, it fuels us for our ongoing life with God and for our love of God. 
Now, the great uh, reformer, John Calvin, and I went to Princeton Seminary. And so regardless of what you may have heard about John Calvin, what you might think about John Calvin, at, at, at Princeton Theological Seminary, we are taught to love John Calvin. Even more than Karl Barth, which th- that's another guy, but, but we are taught to love, love Calvin. Uh, and, and so uh, his logo, though, uh, Calvin's logo, you know, all the reformers, they were good branders. They had logos. So Luther had his, like, heart with the cross and the flower. Nate, what is the flower? It's just a flower. What is, it's just it's like a flower open. It's a good logo. It's a Lutheran logo. It's a great logo, you know? So Luther had his logo. Well, Calvin had his logo. And it was a, a, a hand holding a heart, and the heart was on fire. It's a great logo because he was, it was said that he had a heart aflame in the hand of God. And so I, 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 I love that. That helps me think about what the gift of the Holy Spirit means for us, that our hearts are aflame in the hands of God. So, so it's God's presence with us. And, and next, the, the gift of the Spirit means uh, you know, not just God's presence, but secondarily, it means God's power. The Spirit's like a, the sound of a mighty rushing wind filling the entire house. And so where the Spirit of God is, there's where God's power is to do in us what God needs to do and to take us where God wants us to go. It's, it's, it's like a mighty wind. It's like, you know, we're the sail. The, the, the sail doesn't take you anywhere till it has the wind in it. And we've seen, if you've gone around the lakes recently, you've seen that the sailboats are out. And yesterday... Uh, you know, I was running around the lake, and it was cool, Lake Harriet, and it was cool to see that the wind was out there blowing. You could see the sailboats out there. That's what the Spirit does. We're, we're the sails. We can't do anything on our own, but, but when we have the Spirit, it's blowing us where God wants us to go. And you, you ask, it answers this question, because, you know, you go, I'm an insignificant person. I'm a deeply flawed person. How can I make a difference in the world? You know, we're a little, we're just a little church on kind of an off, you know, Aldrich Avenue is not the most major avenue in the city of Minneapolis. I hate to break it to you. Uh, Lindale, if they wanted to make the church a little more prominent, they should have moved it about a block over. Or maybe even Bryant. Bryant probably would have been a little better. You know, so here we are on kind of this obscure little corner in Minneapolis. How can we make a difference in, in the city? How can, can, can obscure, flawed, you know, uh, broken individuals like us gathered in this obscure place, how can we do anything great for God? And the answer is the Spirit. It's not by our own power. We know that. It's only in God working in us and through us. And so the gift of God's Spirit is the gift to empower us to do uh, what He wants us to do, to be who He wants us to be, uh, to move where He wants us to move. And so that's what the Spirit does, the, the power to do what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 4, his inaugural sermon. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for, for the captive, for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what the Spirit empowers us to do. So we've got the, 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 the presence of God with us, we've got the power of God in us, but lastly, the Spirit is also about God's promise to us. It's a down payment on those, those future promises, right? We get a, get a taste, uh, uh, but uh, we know that at the end we're going to get the full thing, the, 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 the whole boat. And so to be a child of God is to be a child of God's promises. And Scripture is just filled with God's promises. Promise it starts with Abraham. Promise. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. God's promises to Israel, that great promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. 
God's promises to David that one of his ancestors is going to establish an everlasting kingdom. And those promises that we receive through Jesus. He says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. And there's that great promise that we talk about in John uh, chapter 10, where Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it in, in abundance. So the Holy Spirit means that we are a people of the promise. We, we live by these promises from God. And, and, and it's the gift of the Spirit that, that means that God's presence, God's power, God's promises, they aren't just things out there, you know, that we can sort of think about, but they, they, they're actually living inside of us. They, they come alive in us. Now, you hear all this, sounds great. What a great gift. But you still might be thinking, okay, but I don't feel God's presence. I don't feel very powerful. And these promises sometimes just sound like pipe dreams or wishful thinking. And this brings us to then to Galatians, because what our, our skepticism about these, I think, reveals is this battle that we're all in, that, that Paul is talking to the Galatians about. And it's this battle between the spirit and the flesh. That's, that's, that's the battle that's going on. And we have to remember here that, that Paul had gone to Galatia, you know, modern-day Turkey. He had, he had planted these churches by preaching a gospel to them that said, you're justified. God will make you right. He will declare you right. He will make you right. Not by works of the law. You don't have to keep the Torah. You don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. Uh, you're going to be justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ unto death on the cross, and you just believe in that. And so they heard this message, and Paul says, you heard that? And the Spirit came. This whole presence, uh, power, promise thing, it worked. You got that. And, and, and you believed, and, 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 and your lives changed, and you were bonded together in this community, this motley crew called the church. It worked. God's Spirit did its thing. But then these rival teachers came, and, and they were from Jerusalem or associated with the Jerusalem church, and they said, well, you didn't get the whole thing. What you need to do in order to fully belong to God's people, to stay in the family is also keep the law, namely practice circumcision, keep kosher, uh, and observe the Sabbath. Those are the things that are going to keep you on the straight and narrow. Because this, you know, this, this whole spirit faith thing, it's a little kind of wishy-washy, right? It sounds a little squishy, if we're just being honest. And we can imagine that it sounded squishy uh, to the teachers, too. And so they say, you know, faith alone, it's too vague. It's too weak. It's not going to work in the long term. You know, they would agree. The teachers would agree with Paul. Faith, yep, faith, that's going to get you started. That's going to get you kind of pointed in the right direction. But it's the law that is going to help you on the path. It's the law that's going to get you to the finish line. And Paul's law-free gospel, it sounds to a lot of people like an excuse to basically do whatever you want. It doesn't sound like, like freedom so much as what uh, you, the Amish call the rumspringa. Right? That's when the Amish teenagers get to... I don't, I don't know if this is real, but this is just my... I'm not Amish, so I cannot speak to what the Amish people do. But the rumspringa, as I understand it, through not much research, is the Amish teenagers kind of get to try out being worldly and sort of do whatever they want to do. I think of it as sort of like an MTV spring break for Amish kids or something like that. That's what this kind of freedom that people are worried about. It sounds like you basically get to just indulge yourself and do what you want to do. That's what Paul is enabling. That's what he's empowering. That's the inevitable conclusion of what he's talking about. And they say, this is going to lead to moral chaos. We know that the, where there are no rules, chaos reigns. It's like that movie the, uh, where the law goes away for one day. 
What's it called? The purge, right? The purge. I've never seen it, but, uh, but no laws for one day. You know, chaos is going to reign. And Paul says, no, no, no. You've got, you, you've got it completely backwards, actually. He says, when you come to faith in Christ, you're no longer ruled. You, you're not in this world, this other realm called the flesh. We could almost say that we would like uh, capital uh, F flesh, Paul is talking about. This other realm, this other world, this other power. He says, when you belong to the Spirit, you go from kind of one reality to another reality. You're not ruled by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And so for Paul, the grand irony is that in making the law necessary, the teachers are actually trying to, back, they're trying to make these Christians backslide from the world that's, that's under the, the, the power of the Spirit to the world that's under the power of the flesh. And it's this great, he says, in this great battle that we live in, you teachers are, are not on the Spirit's side. You're not on God's side. You're actually on the flesh's side. And the proof of that is this. Things were going really well in the churches, and then you showed up uh, with, uh, with, 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 with your, your necessity of works of the law. And what happened was dissension and division and factionalism and disorder and chaos. That's what you've sown. And so Paul's charge is against these teachers that they came promising to make things right, to make things better, and they've only made things so much more worse. So much so that Paul says in verse 15, he says, be careful you don't devour each other. And the language here is like of two dogs fighting. It's like a dog fight is what life has become like in the church. Now, just a note here on what Paul means by the flesh when he's talking about the flesh. When we think of sins of the flesh, you know, uh, we all know that we're thinking of sort of, uh, you know, uh, sexual stuff. That's not just what Paul is talking about, though those are included in his list of works of the flesh. Nor is he talking about our bodies are bad, you know, so we need to just kind of disabuse ourselves. We don't need to take care of ourselves because the flesh, this flesh is passing away or, or to denigrate, you know, being an embodied human being and that Christianity is about somehow detaching ourselves from worldly reality so we can enter into disembodied bliss. That's not what Paul is talking about. For Paul, the flesh is it's just shorthand for human nature as it is in rebellion against and opposition to God. And so this includes, for Paul, our personal struggles, our personal temptations, but also, like I said before, the flesh is almost this super personal um, entity, this power or force that is active in the world that's at war with the spirit. And so the battlefield for Paul, it's cosmic. It's far bigger than what's just happening to one human being alone. And so in verse 13, Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And that word opportunity, it's actually a Greek word for a, a staging ground for a military operation. So Paul's message is that if we misunderstand the true nature of, of our freedom, it will become like a, like a staging ground, a battleground, and a, a, a forward operating base for the flesh against the spirit. And so the battle that we are in as Christians is this battle, Paul says, between the spirit and the flesh, which really, when you look at it, is a battle between a true understanding of freedom and a false understanding of freedom. So the last point I'm going to talk about today is, is, uh, is true freedom. But the, but the point I want to make here in this battle between false freedom is, is it's important to understand what these kind of two different visions of false freedom are and, and where we could potentially go wrong, either to one side or the other. Because there's this false freedom that is promised in legalism and what I will call, you know, libertarianism. Not as the American political philosophy, but, but you'll see what I mean when I talk about 
So there's this false freedom promised in legalism. That's what the teachers who, who came into Paul's Galatian churches were talking about. And their message was, you know, you Galatians, we know you used to be pagans. You didn't know how to act. You were sleeping around. You were engaged in all kinds of shameful, you know, drunkenness, orgies, idolatry, revelry, superstition. You can be free from that. I can promise you that you can be free from that. If you keep the law, you will never go back to the way you were. But that's not true freedom because what it is is it's seeking freedom through moral performance, not through God's work. And the problem with that, that kind of freedom, is instead of making you more righteous when you are basing um, your sense of freedom on, on, on moral performance, you don't become more righteous, you become more self-righteous. You, 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 you don't become more humble, you become smug. You get a sense of superiority, that you're better than other people. And you also get anxious because you're always comparing yourself to other people. And it also comes with a healthy dose, an unhealthy dose of condemnation because you can never measure up. And so you're condemned, you're discouraged. It doesn't work. And so the false freedom of legalism produces a bunch of the things, actually eight of the 14 things that Paul lists in his works of the flesh, I would say are, 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 are a result of this false freedom of legalism. When he talks about enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, right? These are the communal uh, uh, sins, the communal works of the flesh that, that destroy community life because we're basing it on moral performance, a, a false freedom. Now, if you live by legalism, you get that. It's a false freedom that says you can be free if you just, just try hard enough. Or, or if you can just control yourself, and then in turn, usually you can't control yourself. So you just need to control your environment in order to be free. It's the freedom that comes with trying to have legalism, trying to have control over everything, a false freedom. Now, on the other hand, there's this libertarian streak that's a false freedom. The understanding that says freedom, we were talking about it in life group this, this past week, okay, different concepts of freedom. And the sense that says freedom is doing whatever you want to do, of never having to say no to anything. You know, everything is permissible. And this is the, the false freedom that's obvious in those other works of the flesh that, that Paul lists. And, and I'll use Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here, where he, he calls them repetitive loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. Does any of that sound like freedom? No. So Paul is clear as day that, 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 that these teachers with their Jesus plus works of the law message aren't offering real freedom with their false control narrative, and neither are those who think that just be, okay, so yeah, I'm justified by faith, works of the law don't matter, great, now I can do anything I want to do. That's not real freedom, freedom either. That's not life under the Spirit. And that's the irony, an irony we see, uh, that as a Christian too, the temptation, it's, e it's easy to trick ourselves into believing, you know, that the Holy Spirit is leading us into a greater freedom. 
which just so happened almost always when we talk about this, that freedom almost always happens to reflect whatever the broader sort of cultural values are around us so we can, so we can fit in. So it depends on your context, where you live. So if it's in South Minneapolis, that the spirit, the freedom that could be leading us into is whatever a, uh, you know, a good progressive person is supposed to think in 2021 and do. And it's different if you live in Prior Lake or if you live in East Bethel, Minnesota, or if you live in Palisade, Minnesota. It just so happens that the freedom the Spirit leads us into is that kind of freedom to fit in and be comfortable wherever we are. And that, for Paul, is living under the the flesh. It's not living under the Spirit. And it's that temptation that is always out there lurking that, uh, that equates the Holy Spirit, which in German, and every time I say a German word, I do a very bad German accent and make it very harsh. I apologize for that. But uh, the Heiligengeist, that's the Holy Spirit. I always do that when I say a German word. I can't stop. The Heiligengeist, that's the Holy Spirit. We can easily equate it with a much more common word from our English parlance, which is the Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, that our temptation is always to equate those two things. But the saying is true and worthy of acceptance, that those who wed themselves to the spirit of this age will find themselves widowed in the next. And so this war between the flesh and the spirit, it's a war between true and false freedom. Between the kind of false freedom that Paul says, I warned you before. These false freedoms, if, you, if, you, if you're living in that way, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, if you, if you live with the Spirit, if you keep in step with the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, then you will get through this battle into the kingdom. All right, so we've seen what the Spirit is, power, presence, promise, this, this, false, this battle between the Spirit and the flesh, flesh, between true and false freedom. But what is this true freedom I'm talking about? And that's our last point, and and that's the real freedom as exemplified by the fruit of the Spirit. And that question remains, okay, Paul, you've told me what not to do, but what do I do? How do I cultivate that fruit? How do I get it? How do I experience that true freedom that comes with living in the Spirit? And Paul's answer is shockingly that you can cultivate that by uh, 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 fulfilling the entire law by loving your neighbor as yourself. He says the entire law is fulfilled in one word, that one saying. Now you could go, Paul, you were just telling me the law was like not important. I didn't need to do that. Is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? Did he just sneak this back in there? No. Because one thing the Spirit does is it gives us the power to live into the law, not under the law, but live into the law, not as a list of commandments, but as a series of promises. And, and our translation obscures this. It, 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 it's, it's captioned there, but it's subtle. Because the Greek says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You, you know, in our translation it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which, when we hear shall, that is a future tense. But we hear that as a command. Right? That's the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. That, it's not like you will not murder, because some people will. So we hear shall as a commandment. But it's, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's the future tense. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, that sums up everything. And so obeying the law of love isn't something we're commanded to do, but it's something, Paul says, that God promises will happen when we're living under the Spirit. But that's not where where we really, really, really find true freedom. Okay, so that will happen. That promise will come. But true freedom is found in verse 13 where Paul says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity, a staging ground for the flesh, so no false freedom. 
He says, but through love, serve one another. Now, that sounds very nice. You could put that on a doily, right? Through love, serve one another, and you could. But even that, that verb for, verb for serve, it means something much more scandalous. It means work as a slave to one another. And so, in fact, when I was reading one of the commentaries this week, it said this list of the fruits of the Spirit, these were actually um, characteristics that were associated with slaves. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We think that that's good. We hear that, we're like, wow, that sounds like a great person. But those were the characteristics of someone who was servile. And this brought to my mind, because someone said, you know, these are actually characteristics associated with slaves. It made me think of, uh, and maybe this is just my mind, but it, it brought to my mind uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German, he was a philologist, kind of cultural critic, gadfly. I mean, Nietzsche is just a very interesting person. And it brought me, it gave me occasion again to read, uh, I have this on my shelf, the basic writings of Friedrich Nietzsche, which are very interesting, uh, to put it in my most Minnesotan way. They're very interesting readings. But but Nietzsche says this too. He, he talks about Christian morality as slave morality, and he contrasts it with, uh, with master morality, in, in, especially in his first essay on his book called the, On the Genealogy of Morality. And so I read it. And so Nietzsche agrees. He agrees with this commentator who says the fruits of the Spirit are examples, are indicatives of a slave morality. And Nietzsche knows that, and that's one of the reasons that he hates Christianity. Because Nietzsche says that master morality is born from the aristocratic and noble classes who are strong and who are proud and virile, and they live life on their own terms. What's good, he says, belongs to the elite and the powerful of society, to the strong, to the smart, to the beautiful, to the powerful. He says that's what originally good meant, and what's bad means what is common what belongs to the masses. Whatever your average person is capable of doing, that's what's bad. It's contemptible. And, and Nietzsche blames uh, the Jews, and if you know history, that's not surprising. So Nietzsche blames the Jews, he says, for beginning what he called a slave revolt in morality, claiming that it was their hatred of the elite who by definition possessed what they never could that inspired the formation of, of slave morality because they were, you know, making a, a virtue of necessity of their servile status. And so Christianity, he says, it's the apotheosis of this development, and it represents the triumph of slave morality, because it's the triumph of the morality of the masses, of democratic morality. And Nietzsche had to admit that, that Christianity, it represents the triumph of slaves over their masters. And I have to say, Nietzsche was right, even though he's wrong. Because Christianity, as we see it presented to us by Jesus and Paul, it is a slave morality. It is a slave religion. It has always been the religion of liberated slaves who serve Christ, he says, by serving one another. And when you're serving each other, that mutuality of service, it abolishes the hierarchy of domination upon which the entire master-slave binary rests. The Israelites were freed from their captivity by the grace of God before they received the law. And we have to say that Christianity in America has perhaps its, perhaps its deepest and most enduring roots amongst those who are the descendants of people who were held 
in slavery. Because they got the truth, they got at the truth that what their masters had tried to use for their subjugation, enslaved people have always found as God's power for liberation. And so the Spirit is given for our freedom. Freedom from the law's curse, freedom from its condemnation, freedom from its guardianship over us, and freedom too from lives of ignorance and idolatry and immorality. So freedom from those things, but also freedom for Christ. Freedom to serve one another out of love. And the fruit of the Spirit in that way, they represent not something that we have to try really hard to do, but they're the result of what God is doing in us. The Spirit isn't given so that, you know, we can do this. Okay, go make some, some, go make some joy and some peace and some patience. Make yourself be, be self-controlled and humble. You can't command those things. You can't legislate those things. You can't legislate that you love other people. There's no law that can make you do that at all. There's no law that can make you a patient person. This is, this is character formation. They cannot be manufactured. They've got to be grown. And so God grows them in us when we keep in step with the Spirit. And so it's not so much something that we have to try to do, but something we have to look at ourselves and evaluate. Is that developing? Is that growing? And so, you know, some of the ways we can do this is by looking to Christ, by trusting Him, listening to Him, seeking His will, loving as He loved us, forgiving as He forgave us. That prayer, not my will, but thy will be done. Resisting temptation, overcoming evil, living in anticipation of this kingdom which is already and not yet, which God has promised will come, where the world looks like it will be when God is fully in charge. And so that's what the gift of the Spirit is about, this, this, this true freedom. And when we get a gift like that, what can we help do but say thank you? And how else can we live but with gratitude? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.